Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. Where our Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer, as we call it, this is the prayer that he prayed right before he went to the cross. He prayed this on the night in which he was betrayed and he was about ready to be arrested. Soon he would be taken before the high priest and be unjustly condemned. Uh, he would also then be taken before Pontius Pilate. And there, even though Pilate three times declared him innocent, he would be uh, sentenced to die by crucifixion. Before that, he was sent to King Herod, who mocked him, uh, his soldiers mocked him. And um, all of that was going on in just a few minutes, really, after Christ had prayed this prayer, maybe an hour or so. But as he, as he prayed in John 17, it starts off in verse 1, uh, John, who was present when Jesus prayed this, the man who wrote this, was there. And he said, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven. John saw Jesus do that. I think that's interesting when he writes. John was there. He was watching Jesus. He saw him lift his eyes to heaven and said, this is what Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen. We're going to pause there and consider those three verses. Father, we ask you to bless us now and pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to your word and that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would open your word to us that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. So this is a pretty straightforward text. We see here that Jesus getting ready to go to the cross. He doesn't say, Father, please deliver me. Get me out of this. Uh, one of the things he told his disciples uh, on the cross was he said, Do you not know that I could presently pray to my Father and that he would send ten legions of angels? Uh, Christ didn't have to go to the cross, but he willingly did so. And so note here, as he sees the cross looming ahead, and just for him at that time, just a, a few short uh, moments in one sense, his prayer is not, Father, get me out of this. His prayer is, yeah, uh, the hour has come. Now, Jesus had prayed, Lord, if uh, this cup will not pass, except I drink it, let your will be done. That's a far cry from saying, get me out of this. Jesus said, if this has to be done, then let it be done. And so Christ gave himself to the will of the Father to die for us. Some have said, well, why did he pray that? If this cup could pass, you know, uh, if there's some way. Well, as some have said, Christ was be, to be identified with our sin and his holiness, the holiness of his soul, his relationship with the Father. Uh, to him, the idea of being identified with sin was repugnant. And so he did pray, not that he didn't love us, 
but he knew what sin was and is, but he prayed and then he willingly went. So now as he prays, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That's his prayer. He's getting ready to enter into sufferings and death. His prayer is that the son be glorified. Glorify your son. Why? That your son also may glorify you. Jesus knew his glory and the glory of the father were bound up in one. <clears throat> and his glory would be displayed in our salvation. He says, as you have given him authority over all flesh. Note that that is universal. But then we see the particular nature of redemption, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So we see that the purpose of redemption was particular. We would simply say, you know, from the rest of scripture and this chapter, the elect, those whom the father gave to the son. So no, Christ has authority over all men. He came to redeem those whom the father had given to him. This has to do with God's eternal plan. You know, some people get all tied in knots when they hear the doctrine of election. It's, there's no reason to do that. God has a plan and a purpose. He's sovereign over all things. If you're saved, it's because the Father gave you to the Son in eternity past, and the Son covenanted with the Father and the Holy Spirit to redeem you. The Holy Spirit covenanted with the Father and the Son to apply that redemption. And so here Jesus says, as you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then he defines eternal life. And I want us to look at this verse in, in detail here this morning. And this is eternal life. Christ is going to tell us what it means. We've talked about this before. Most of the time we say, well, eternal life, what does it mean? Well, it means to live eternally, right? That's pretty simple to figure out. It means to live forever and ever and ever. And yes, it does mean that, but that's not how Jesus defined eternal life. He said, and this is eternal life eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus says that knowledge of God is eternal life, that eternal life is actually defined, we would say, by a relationship with God, that they might know you, or in the old King James, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom uh, thou hast sent. Now, it's interesting because Again, you know, the testimony of the deity of Christ, if you put a mere creature's name next to that first phrase that they might know thee, the only true God, and then if you put somebody else's name there, it would be utter blasphemy. You know, whoever you wanted to put there, some religious leader, some political leader, something like that. But our Lord Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he is in his person, eternal. He is of the same essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is God. As John began his gospel in John 1, 1 said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When Thomas, after the resurrection, sees Jesus, as you know, we've talked about this before, and he says to him, remember, first he said, yeah, I've got to put my hand in the wounds in order to believe, and then Jesus appeared eight days later and said, Thomas, here, come. Put your, hand, put your finger in my in the wound in my hand. Put your put your hand in my side. Thomas's next words were, "My Lord," and it says in the text, "He said to him." It wasn't he, he didn't blurt it out like the Jehovah's Witnesses try to say. So it was just an expletive. Yeah, right. He's just blaspheming when he sees the resurrected Christ. It's not what happened. Okay, it says he said Thomas said to him, "My Lord and my God." Thomas knew who it was he was looking at. He was looking at God incarnate. 
Jesus said, because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness or piety. God was manifested in the flesh. And that's who Jesus is. He is the eternal God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So to know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, is not a blasphemous statement at all. It's a true statement. We know God through his Son. Now, knowledge of God is what we, I want us to consider today. Because it's really important from this verse we can learn immediately this idea is, is vital. This is something we need to know about. What does it mean to know God? How can we know God? And the Bible has a lot to say about that. In Jeremiah chapter 31, that well-known verse about the new covenant, uh, God spoke through Jeremiah and said, But this shall be the covenant that I shall make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And will be their God and they shall be my people. So God says, I'm going to internalize the law. It was an external command, which men broke. But he says, the new covenant, I'm going to put my law inside them. It's going to be a principle at work within them. It's his work to do that. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying what? Know the Lord. Again, this idea of the knowledge of God. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, there's no teaching to be in the church when he says they won't be saying, know the Lord. He's just saying that within the covenant community, those who have the law of God written in their heart, they're going to know me from the least of them to the greatest. And if you remember when the disciples were arguing over who would be the greatest and who was the least, what did Jesus do? It says he took a little child and put him in the midst. And he told the disciples, you need to become like a child. You know, and so we see here the least of them. That's why, you know, our covenant children, when they're being taught and instructed, you ask them what they know. I've talked about this before. It's really important. But if you ask them, what do you know about Jesus? What are they going to tell you? That he loves me and he died on the cross for me. This is what Jeremiah was talking about. They're going to know that God is the one who has forgiven their sins. But it doesn't rule out teaching. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 that God has appointed originally apostles, prophets, evangelists. And then we have those two permanent offices in the church, pastors and teachers. And so there is teaching to go on. Where to, you know, Paul told Timothy, teach sound doctrine. But if you notice here, it's knowing God. He said, they will all know me. You know, if you're a believer today, you can say, yes, I do know the Lord. My knowledge needs to increase. We'll look at that in a moment. And so we need to know who God is. Well, how do you gain knowledge of God? Well, clearly from his word and by prayer, by asking for it. James says you have not because you ask not. And so if we know, well, God has given us eternal life in his son, and that's defined as knowledge. And so I need to grow in my knowledge. You know, Moses had the same feeling. In Exodus chapter 3, when God commissioned him, we read there in verse 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? Well, so what shall I say unto them? The idea, you know, your name defines who you are. And so uh, sometimes people say, you know, your name is what you make of it, all right? But in the Bible, you know, God's names tell us who he is. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. 
very wonderful phrase. And I am that I am. Some will translate it, I am what I am. The Hebrew can actually be, I will be that which I will be. Hebrew has a different way of approaching time in their verb system. So it's very difficult to get this fully into English. Uh, but they, uh, just read your Bible and you can understand it. But God is saying, I am what I am. I am that I am. In other words, you want to know me? It's exactly how I've revealed myself. I'm not different than who I am. That's kind of hard to grasp, okay? Maybe, maybe you, make up. you probably have it better than I do. God is exactly who he has revealed himself to be. You know, one of the cults in the early church was Sabellianism. Today it's the Jesus-only cult. And uh, they say, well, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And you're like, no, because the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all three present at the baptism of Jesus. The Father speaks in the cloud when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, no, that's, that's incorrect. And what Sibelius and these modern cults teach is that, well, God manifested himself during the Old Testament as the Father. During the time Jesus was here on earth, he manifested himself as the Son, and then now in the church age, he manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. But he's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's just how he manifests himself. So the reason why this was refuted and exposed as, as damnable heresy, because it's a different God than as God has revealed himself. The church fathers and others said, so you're saying God revealed himself a certain way at different times in history, but he's not really that way. That's blasphemy. This verse in Exodus corrects that. God is exactly how he revealed himself to be. By the way, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three revealed in the Old Testament during the time Christ was here on earth and during the church age, okay, if you want to call it that, uh, the period between the first and second comings of Christ. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one God. In the Old Testament, Genesis 1.1, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit hovered above the waters, and God spoke and said, uh, let there be light, and there was light. Later, he says, let us create man in our image. And some try to say, well, that was the angels and God. Like, really? No, we're not made in the image of angels. The book of Hebrews talks about that. Christ came uh, incarnate as a man, not as an angel. Uh, and the Father was not speaking to the angels there because it says immediately, and he created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him. So it's like, why is that plural? Well, that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit speaking. We're made in the image of the triune God. Now, it doesn't mean you're a trinity, but it means they're the communicable attributes of God, those things that he puts in us that reflect who he is, are real and show that we are image bearers in righteousness and in love and true knowledge. Uh, and so God has made us to be in his image. God, we, you know, Paul said, uh, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is, I'm saved. But God says, I am that I am. God reveals himself, and that's exactly how he is. So if you want a knowledge of God, you can go to the word. Moses was told this. And he said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, Yahweh Elohim, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. That name Yahweh comes, it's related to the Hebrew verb to be, he who is. I think some translate it the eternal one. Um, in Exodus 34, when Moses asked to see God's glory, so we're told that the Lord put him in a cleft of the rock and said, you'll see 
uh, my glory after it passes. And he says, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. To gain the knowledge of God, we need to know what he is about. What kind of God is he? He is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. What does that mean? Some say, well, wait a minute, is that a contradiction? He forgives sin, but he doesn't clear the guilty? No, that means if your sins aren't forgiven, they will be answered. You will answer for them unless they're forgiven. That's what that means. He forgives sin, but if a person turns their back on God's mercy, they will give an account of themselves and they will answer for their sins. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and it will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth and to the fourth generation. In the law, it's that same phrase. It says to the, them that hate me, but showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. As long as multiple generations continue in sin, so they are under God's uh, wrath and he does punish them. But to know God, we need to know how he's revealed himself. That's why I wanted to share that passage. In John chapter 14, an interesting thing is, is discussed there. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 6. Uh, we read there, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, he's talking to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him. So Jesus said, if you'd known me, you'd know the Father. Christ is the one that reveals the Father. John said in chapter 1, verse 18 of his gospel, no man has seen God at any time. That means in the fullness of who he is. But then he says, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, in the Father's heart, he has declared him. He's revealed him. He's made him known. So Jesus says here, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and uh, have seen him. Verse 8 tells us, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. That's enough. That's all we ask. Give us a clear vision of God the Father. He's not asking for much, is he? He said, I'm like, I want to see God the Father. So Jesus answers this. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Note this. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And thou sayest, uh, then show us the Father. He said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Notice Jesus didn't say, I am the Father. He doesn't confound the persons of the Trinity, but he says, the Father is in me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because Christ is the perfect image bearer of the Father. He's the one that reveals him. Now, this knowledge of God that comes from knowing Jesus as your Savior should create gratitude in you. You know, that's one of the marks. How do you know if you know God? Well, are you thankful? You know, is that your, your hope and your joy and your boast? In uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, uh, the Lord speaks. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. 
but let him that glorieth glory in this. So if you want to boast, you want to have something to be happy about, here's what it is. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So God says, if you want to boast, then make it be in knowing me. So it's a good thing for us to stop and consider, what is my boast? What is my joy? You know, it ought to be that, that wow, I, I, by little, as ignorant as I am, as however much I struggle with sin, and sometimes I feel I'm a complete failure, and I am, apart from Jesus Christ, but he's at work in me. I can honestly say, by God's grace and mercy, because I'm trusting in Jesus, I've come to know God. I know his love. I know his grace. I know his long-suffering, his patience, his gentleness, his kindness, all those things he desires to see brought forth in me as his image bearer, they're in him first and foremost. And so uh, that's a beautiful passage. That's Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It's worth memorizing, okay? Glory in the Lord. Glory that you know him. Uh, Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known of mine. You know, we talked about election. Well, how do you know if you're elect? Well, do you know Jesus? Are you trusting in him? Uh he says he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. doesn't mean your knowledge is perfect, but it does mean that you know him. You're trusting in him. And so in 1 John 2.14, John was able to write and he says, I've written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. You've come to know God. So when John's writing to the Christians that he's addressing in his first epistle, he says, I'm writing to you because you've come to know God. You know him. And it's important for us to be able to say that, you know, I know God, I have eternal life. If you say, well, doesn't it come through believing in Jesus? That's what it means to know him, to believe in him, to trust in him, to have that relationship of peace that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ, to know God. In 2 Timothy 1.12, uh, we find that the knowledge of God is the basis of our perseverance. You know, we talk about how we struggle sometimes, uh, you know, the... Uh, the rock is solid, but sometimes, as one man said, we're slipping and sliding all over the top of it, but he's solid, okay? We need to ask God, Lord, give me stability. Help me to persevere. I don't want to be like those that fall away. And so in 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, as he's talking, and he's getting ready to end, his, to end his ministry because Caesar's getting ready to end his life. He knows that, but he's in God's hands. So Paul says, in talking about preaching the gospel and honoring Christ, that for which cause I also suffer these things, that is, he was in chains. And then he says this, you know, you know, this is made into a song. If you know the song, you can't help but think about it when you're reading this. Nevertheless, he says, I am not ashamed. Note that Paul says, here I am locked in a jail. My name's been ruined. People, when they hear about me, they go, oh yeah, jailbird Paul. You know, he's just a troublemaker, etc." Paul also in, in 2 Timothy said that all men had turned away from him except for a few. It was dangerous to be associated with the Apostle Paul at that time. And so many people were like, just like Peter with Jesus, they were like, eh, no, I don't really know this Paul guy. Who are you talking about? Some of his friends had done that. And they just kind of distanced. But Paul did have a, a close circle of men that God had uh, put on their hearts to, to be faithful in friendship to him. So Paul's gone through all this. He says, nevertheless, he said, I'm not ashamed. I don't care if they keep scorn upon me for honoring Christ. For I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. Note that. He doesn't say, well, I hope possibly, maybe. He says, I know. Paul had a knowledge of God. 
It wasn't just, well, I know I believe. He didn't say that. You know, lots of times uh, people, evangelicals, reformed, whatever, we often say, well, I know that I believe. Well, that's not what Paul said. And it is good if you know you believe, that's great, okay? But it's got to be more than that. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. Faith has an object. You've heard me talk about this a lot in the past. If somebody runs around and says, I love, I love, I love, we can, we're, what, do you, what do you love? They go, oh, nothing in particular. You go, I don't know if you love anything if you don't love anything in particular, okay? Uh, and we'd say, no, love has an object. What do you love? And generally, if somebody's really in love, like, you know, take a young couple or something, and, you know, an old couple too, they love their spouse. They love their, you know, their friends. They love their family. Children love their parents. They say, yes, I love, what do you love? I love my mom and dad. I love my wife. I love my children, et cetera, et cetera. Faith is the same way. When you say you believe, in what or whom do you believe? Faith has an object. Paul says, I know whom I have believed. Not just that I have believed, but I know whom. I know the one in whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Well, what did Paul committed unto him? His soul, his life, his salvation, everything, eternity. Paul knew it all depends on Jesus, but Paul was able to say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded by his word and by the experience of my life in trusting his word and his grace to me every day. I can trust him, and I've committed everything that I am and everything that I have into his hands against that day. What day is that? The final day of judgment. So Paul had that confidence. So in trusting in God, knowing him, have, that breeds perseverance and confidence. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8.23, he said, If any man think that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know it. So if someone's boasting, say, well, I know this, that, or the other. He's not talking about a knowledge of God here. He's not saying you can't know God. But he's saying if someone thinks, you know, it's kind of like we would all say, I've, I've joked with some of you, said, you know, there are people that think they're smart and they're not. Okay. Um, that's not a good thing to have happen. So Paul's saying if somebody thinks they know something, in other words, they, they don't need to be taught. So they don't know anything yet. You need to go to God's word always, okay? But then he says, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. Now, if I'd written the Bible, and praise God, I didn't, okay? Because yeah, if I had, you wouldn't want to read it, all right? I wouldn't want you to. But Paul, I would have said, Paul should have said, but if any man know God, the same is known of him. That makes better sense, right? You know, it's like, well, it might on a certain level. But that's not what God said. So we're going to go with what God said because it's the best. And instead of saying, if any man knows God, I think he is saying, if any man knows God, but he's saying it in the way it needs to be said. Because if you really know the Lord, you're going to love him. If you know him as your savior, if you know that Jesus is the one who died on the cross for your sins and he didn't have to, he took your hell the hell that you created by your sins. It's not like, well, there was just this thing that I had nothing to do and it was going to get me and he stepped between me and it. Yeah, okay, but it's not just that. Your sins, the hell that you created by your wickedness that was uh, merited and according to God's just judgment, it was going to fall on your head and crush you for eternity in the lake of fire. That's what Jesus stepped between. He took your sins because he loves you. As John says, to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That is Jesus Christ. 
And so when we know that, we know him, we love him. And so Paul is saying, if any man knows God, but he's saying it, as I said, in the way it ought to be said. If any man loves God, the same is known of him. That is, there's that relationship. That's a child of God, if you love him. And so we can boast in knowledge, but we need to boast in the love of our Savior. Psalm 36.10 says, Oh, continue your loving kindness unto those that know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Continue your loving kindness and your covenant mercies. The Hebrew word is chesed. It's, <laughs> it actually wasn't just clearing my throat. That's an actual Hebrew word, chesed. And it means loving kindness, covenant mercy. Sometimes it's translated love, sometimes just simply as mercy. Loving kindness is a beautiful English word that, that captures a lot, I think, of what that Hebrew word means. Loving kindness. Continue your loving kindness to those who know you. Note that. Continue it, because if you know him, it's already come and found you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart, because that loving kindness changes those who know him. Now, knowing about God and knowing God are two different things, okay? It's important to have knowledge, but we need to make sure that it's, you might say, relational knowledge, that it's knowledge of God and it comes about and creates love in our hearts by God's grace. You know, even the devil knows about God. And we're told the devils believe and tremble, but he doesn't know God and the knowledge we're talking about. You know, there's different Greek words. Remember, there's the word gnosko, which means to have information. It's where we get the word knowledge, and it's, it's related in our uh, language family. That's why we spell knowledge not just with the, the letter N, but with K-N. In Greek, it's G-N, you know, gnosis, knowledge, we would say. That's a whole bunch of linguistic stuff. If you want to know how that happened, I'll tell you at least what I know. But the point is, is that we have gnosis or, or you know, that, that type of informational knowledge. And then there's epignosis, which means experiential knowledge. Uh, gnosis means you, if you know there's cake in the refrigerator, epignosis means there's a slice out because you ate it. You know what it tastes like, okay? And the Bible talks about knowing God. It often uses this term epignosis to have that relationship that experiential knowledge it's not just abstract information it actually has taken root in our hearts and minds and transformed us that's why the preaching of the gospel has been ordained that's why there are teachers in the church to know god you must believe in him through jesus christ and if you do you're going to love him you cannot know that jesus christ is the savior of sinners and that he has given you hope and forgiveness and I don't mean hope like, well, I hope, I hope. It's hope that I actually have hope. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him again because I believe that he died for my sins on the cross, as Paul said. Um, Christ died for me and, and loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said that. It's okay to say, yes, I believe Christ died for me, that I'm one of his sheep because I've seen the evidences of his grace. You know, there's nothing virtuous in a false humility when people go oh i just don't really know if i'm saved or not because i'm doing everything i can but i just don't know it's like that's pretty bad okay and i've known people that have done that it's like you know get a hold of yourself snap out of it you need to recognize if you are trusting in jesus christ you can know that you're saved john says he wrote his gospel so that you might believe he wrote first john and he says specifically uh, so that you might know that you have eternal life. There's knowledge that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know that. So if you are a true believer, you will love the Lord. And if you love the Lord, that means you're believing in him, trusting in him. 
You cannot love and know God without knowing about him, but you can know about him without loving and knowing him. Does that make sense? You can have knowledge about God without it actually taking any effect in you. And unfortunately, there's a lot of liberal theologians and some people live their lives in the church that way. They know about God, but it never really changes them. But if you do know him in truth and you believe in him, uh, then you will have that, that body of knowledge. So you can know information uh, without having a true knowledge of God. But if you have a true knowledge of God, you're going to have information. It's based on God's revelation in Scripture, who he is. So information does not necessarily equate to a true knowledge of God, but a true knowledge of God is founded upon his revelation of who he is. Hosea chapter 6 says this, and I love this, this, this uh, verse. Hosea 6.3. Hosea says, then shall we know. Okay, we're like, I want to know, but I want to grow. And he says, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. So you may say, well, I do know God. That's great. We need to grow in knowledge. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. By the way, to say that about someone that's not God would be blasphemy. You know, you know people say, well, where's the deity of Jesus taught in the Bible? How about every page of scripture? All right, this is a good example. Paul ascribes glory uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do that unless he's God. And he is. He's God and man in one person. But note this. You're to grow in grace. Grace is God's favor to you. You need to know that experientially. That is, you need to experience it in separating you from your sins. And giving you the joy of the Lord. You know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's an important thing to have. And if your heart's not overflowing with joy... It's okay to go to God. Now, by the way, there is a time to mourn, all right? And there's a time to be sad, and there's a time to be serious. But there's a time to rejoice. There's a time to say, wow, praise God. Thank you, Lord, for all your mercies to me. What a miserable wretch I am, and you've saved me. You've made me your child. You're transforming me. I'm not what I once was. I'm not yet what I shall be. I was thinking Scrooge on that one because we already, when he was uh, wanting to know if things could change. And the good news is, yes, beloved, things can change, okay? You're not what you once were. You're not yet what you shall be, but you are what you are by God's grace. You're a child of God. And John said, uh, now are we the sons of God. And it's not yet manifested what we shall be. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Jesus is coming back. And whether if you die before, he's going to raise you up. If you're alive when he returns, either way, you're going to be raised. You're going to be there, transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. You're going to see Jesus, and that's that side of him that's going to transform you completely and eternally and with every vestige of sin removed completely. You're going to see him, and you will be completely conformed to his image. Body, soul, and spirit, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Every aspect of your being will be conformed. You're going to finally be what you're supposed to be. That's what God does for us. That's what he's doing for us now. So if you know him, praise God, but follow on to know him. Your knowledge of God's grace should increase. The grace, it's okay to pray and say, Lord, be more at work in me. I really need sanctification. It's okay to say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know who you are. Recognize 
You want to know Christ? Christ suffered. When you're asking to know God more, to know the Lord Jesus Christ more, he may take you through experiences so that you're going to understand his sufferings for you. And so be wise when you pray, but also be bold when you pray. He's not going to take you through anything that he's not there with you. All right. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You know the rest of that? For thou art with me. That's why David wasn't afraid. He was in the path of righteousness. Next thing you know, he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That's what got him there. He's doing what was right. Let him into the valley of the shadow of death. But he said, I will fear no evil. What? For thou art with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff. By the way, the rod gets used on the sheep when they get out of line. The staff gets used on the wolves and the bears and the people trying to harm the sheep. So he said, your rod and you're, you're dealing with me and you're dealing with anything that could hurt me. That comforts me. It goes on there. But the point is, is that God is always with us. And so we're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter 1, 3, the Christian life flows from a knowledge of God. You want to grow, get to know God. It's not like, well, what principles should I learn, etc.? Well, learn them all, okay? But the, the point is, is that when you're learning those principles of the Christian life, recognize this is teaching me about God as, as I study his word and as I understand how I'm to live. Peter says the Christian life flows from a knowledge of God. That's where it starts. He says in First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter one three. According as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Note that His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. Through knowledge of Him, not just knowledge. You know, it's like, well, we have to have this secret. No, it's knowledge of him as we learn who our Savior is, as we learn who God is, as we learn who the Father is. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we find that uh, the apostle says there, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. When, what, how did he do that? He spoke his word. That's what he's pointing us to. For God who, has, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.8. Paul said that knowledge of God was above all value of everything else. He said, yea, this is Philippians 3.8. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Note that. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. <clears throat> he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, that I may win Christ. Paul said, it doesn't matter. I don't care what the world takes. I have Jesus, and, and I have eternal life. My inheritance is in heaven, and he's preserving it. In Colossians 3.10, we find that as God restores his image in us, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, he says, you put off the old man and in 3.10 he says, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So you cannot be you, that is who you are truly meant to be, apart from knowing God in Christ Jesus, his only begotten son. <coughs> Daniel in chapter 11, verse 32, the second half, he said, but the people that do know their God 
shall be strong and do exploits. That's what we need. That's the need of our day. Christians that know the Lord and that are bold to serve him according to his word. So we come back to John 17, 3, don't we? This and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. May God set before us knowledge of him as our uh, most important thing. The, you know, that's what we need to be pursuing, and we need to be asking God, Lord, teach me what it means to know you, and as I know you, teach me what it means to live according to that knowledge. And God is more willing to do this for you than you're willing to ask. He wants you to know him. If you're a believer, he's called you into fellowship. He wants to have that relationship with you. So give him thanks and call upon his name and you'll see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that is true. We ask you to bless us now and seal to our hearts uh, the testimony of the Holy Scriptures that we would truly know you as our Lord and Savior and honor you in our lives and walk with you, Lord, even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death, help us to fear no evil because you are with us. And this we ask, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And I believe we have a song to sing.